0: You're listening to The Creation Academy, a weekly podcast defending the truth of God's Word in Biblical creation science. I'm your host, Steve Schramm, and this week we're dealing with Adam according to the Old Testament. Adam according to the Old Testament. This is uh, technically episode number two in our Biblical Origin of Humanity series. And in this series, we're looking at just that, the Biblical Origin of Humanity, Uh, Origins is a hot subject uh, these days. And to be honest with you, it's even a hotter subject with this recent trend to accept uh, theistic evolution in some areas of the church. Um, Many areas, uh, many, many, there's an organization, BioLogos is probably the greatest progenitor of this position. Uh, But many churches have allowed for Darwinian evolution to fit inside of the Bible, and uh, what this particular book contends is that uh, that that's not possible, but it doesn't really argue necessarily from that perspective. Uh, It makes a positive case, rather, for the uh, historicity of Adam as a real individual person in history, Uh, just like the Bible Um, says. And so, I I think we can uh, safely conclude that and draw that from these early chapters in Genesis, and that is what we're looking at this morning, Adam according to the Old Testament. Now, I will say, um, again, just to remind you, this series is coming from a book called Searching for Adam, Genesis and the truth about man's origin searching for Adam Genesis and the truth about man's origin Now I want to highly encourage you to pick up this book. I think right now you can get it on kindle uh, Which also works on the kindle app for uh, ipad and such uh, for five dollars and ninety nine cents And it is a great deal. It's a good book. It's a bit of a long book Uh, It took me a while to to read it um and so, uh, but, but I love it. It's, it's a really great book, and it really gives the gamut. It talks about science, history, uh, archaeology, uh, biblical studies. It really investigates this question of Adam very thoroughly and from every angle uh, imaginable. And so I thought it would be a really, really good choice for us to go through and to use this particular book as a textbook. Now, if you don't have it yet, get it. I mean, go ahead and get it in, and then go back and listen to these first episodes and follow along. Try to read uh, the chapters that we're getting ready to do um, for this week, um, or for each week, rather. And uh, you can go refer back to the very first um, uh, lesson in this series, which was last week, which kind of gave you an outline of what to expect and what chapters we would be doing Which week? Alright, so this week we're in chapter 1 of the book. Now, this is a long chapter, and I'm going to do my absolute best to fit everything into today. There were many things I needed to skip in order to, to do that. Now, I do want to be thorough, but at the same time, I want to keep everybody interested. So... I don't necessarily want to spend uh, two weeks on a chapter. In fact, there are some chapters that I'm going to combine two chapters into one week. And if you listened to the first lesson last week, you'll remember that. So I don't want to get into extending this out any longer than we have to. So I'm going to dive into the content pretty soon today. But we may have to do a secondary episode to this one for the Old Testament. But, But I hope not. I hope not. Hopefully we won't have to do that. And uh, we I've outlined things in such a way that I think we can get through the meat of the content in this one lesson, and then, of course, if you pick up the book, you can get the rest and fill in the blanks. And let me tell you, I I really did have to skip quite a bit in order to to be able to fit this in, uh, and that's obvious. I mean, I I can't I can't quote everything that the book says. I can't just read you the book. Um, and so you need to go get that for yourself and work through it yourself, but it will be a great study. You will really, really enjoy it, I think. And I just want to kind of hit the high points with you uh, on this uh, podcast and give you my comments on it, and hopefully it will be instructive and helpful for you as you try to study this issue About human origins. And it's, again, a very important issue. It's important to know not only where you stand, it's also important to know uh, where the Bible stands, though, on this issue. And it matters a great deal, because you need to defend your position. You know, in a world where we're being taught that we all are just higher evolved animals, I just don't believe that's true. The Bible gives no indication that that's true. And that's the basis that we're going to work from. And you need to be able, when confronted with that, to defend against it. Because our opinion, this Bible opinion, is not popular. Now, its unpopularity does not have anything to do with its truth. Unpopularity or popularity has nothing to do with with truth. As a matter of fact, Jesus himself said that uh, very few after he said some hard sayings, uh, followed him. And many others, in fact, left him. And that's just the way that we find this Christian experience to be. Something that is inclusive of those who are supposedly spiritually seekers is usually, usually going to be missing something biblically. And what I mean by that is that Jesus said he came to bring not unity, but a sword. And this Christian life, this Christian message is a tough one. And it's going to be hard for people to accept. It's hard for people to live. Many people, when they find out what it entails, do not want to live this life. And I'm talking about in America, where we have a very comfortable Christianity, Compared to the rest of the world, we know nothing of persecution in in, in this country, and we should thank God every day for where we are and pray uh, for the help of those who do not have it quite the way we do. All right, Uh, but I want to get into this and start looking at Adam according to the Old Testament. Now, this chapter in the book, again, it's chapter one, is written by Dr. William D. Barrick. William D. Barrick, and I never personally heard of him uh, before in my own studies, and so thankfully at the end of this book, they do have a little bit about each of the contributors. Remember, this book is actually written by multiple authors, uh, compiled and edited together by Dr. Terry Mortensen from Answers in Genesis, and so there have been a lot of different people to um, review this content and make sure that it is up to par and what we What we need to see. Now, Dr. Barrick, again, nobody is perfect. There is no uh, perfect human being who is writing these things. And so everybody's going to have their character flaws. But I think we can establish a reasonable degree of trust. And it is reasonable for us to want to establish that when we're reading uh, such an authoritative um, topic. There are truth claims made all throughout this book. There are claims that this book is accurately representing and interpreting the Word of God. And if we're going to accurately uh, represent the Word of God, we need to make sure that we are doing that to a very high standard. Now, uh, what is a high standard? Well, I believe you can accurately represent God and not have any kind of alphabet soup after your name. Uh, however, of course, it always is good to make sure somebody is studied up in their field and and um, is, is worthy uh, of writing authoritatively on their particular subject. And so Dr. William Barrick is just like that. He is a retired Old Testament professor. And most recently, he taught at the Master Seminary there in Sun Valley, uh, California, and prior to his time there, he was a missionary Bible translator in Bangladesh for about 15 years, and according to the characterization here in the book, he now devotes himself to a writing ministry, serves as the Old Testament editor for the Evangelical Exegetical Commentary Series, uh, for which he is writing the Genesis Volume he also teaches in other countries and pastoral training centers uh, associated with the Master's Academy International and uh, has worked on Bible translations, books, chapters and other books, journals, book reviews, things of that nature. So I believe we can look at this man and see that he has a reasonable track record. I think we can uh, take from this that he probably knows a little something about the Old Testament. I think we can trust his word here. Uh, I, I don't, necessarily think that he has a reason to come to this with a presupposition of seeing any views and reading them into this. I think he wants to take a look at where the Bible stands, read it according to a um, historical grammatical hermeneutic, as we believe we should read the Bible, and then draw from there what the most logical and reasonable conclusion would be, again, without uh, reading anything else into it. So we want to draw out, that's exegesis, not read in, that's eisegesis. We want to faithfully interpret what the Bible says. So um, let's take a look at this. Dr. William Barrick uh, starts out by kind of giving us a paradigm difference, a paradigm difference. He says uh, there are kind of two camps. There's God said it, that settles it. Now, we've all heard that before, right? God said it, that settles it. Some people say, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. But I think we can all agree, no matter where your cards uh, fall, uh, you might not use this kind of argumentation with an unbeliever. I'm certainly not saying that you would. Um, Anytime I hear somebody criticize that particular saying and that statement, uh, it's usually in dealing with an unbeliever. Well, I don't expect necessarily an unbeliever to uh, accept that God said it, that settles it. And, uh, you know, I'm not going to get into apologetic methodology here, uh, but even the methodology I subscribe to, which is uh, presuppositionalism, by the way, um, it, it's not a God says it, that settles it kind of thing with the unbeliever, okay? There are, um, there are inroads that you can use certain evidences and things, and uh, it's, it's, it's a robust faith. Christianity is a robust faith, and many skeptics don't understand that. Uh, some compare it to Santa Claus, all right? But, it, but it, that's not the way it is. Christianity is a very robust faith. And so, uh, that's one paradigm. God said it, that settles it. Now, for the Christian, for any Christian, that should be the way it is. Bottom line, God said it, that settles it. He gave us His revealed Word. Okay? Now, this is very important because this means that everything else that we know about the world— If the Bible comments on it, we should be interpreting that from a biblical perspective. And really, this is the problem. This is the reason for the whole book, is that a lot of times we find that interpretations are coming outside of the Bible, into the Bible. Now, Ken Ham characterizes it as God's word versus man's word, and by the way, has been criticized for characterizing it that way. Um, I, I don't know that I necessarily subscribe to characterizing it that way, But uh, the fact of the matter is, is that you've got the Bible, and if you are interpreting out of the Bible, you're going to get a different conclusion than if you come to other conclusions from outside of the Bible and attempt to read those in to what you think the Bible is saying about it. And there's a big difference. Now, so let's look at the other side. So there's God said it, that settles it. And then there's the biblical writers said it, ancient Near Eastern literature confirms it, therefore I can now... Accept it. But did you notice that God is nowhere in the picture? Now, of course, uh, I'm sure anybody who accepts it, even by that standard, the biblical writer said it, near Eastern literature confirms it, therefore I can now accept it. I think that they would still say that they uh, fully see that to be a revelation from God. I, you know, I don't think that's the problem. Uh, I don't know if he's characterized that incorrectly or not, because I'm sure they would say, oh yes, of course, God uh, wrote the Bible. Nevertheless, though, uh, it is largely dependent on this interpretation of the Near Eastern text. But here's the thing. If the Bible is the revealed word of God, it's going to have some stark differences in it than the ancient Near Eastern texts around it. Uh, Any book that—I mean, let me just back up. There's no book like the Bible. The Bible is a unique work. Uh, You know, I understand context. I understand historical context. I I understand those things, and I think those things are extremely important. But to understand uh, a biblical worldview, I I don't think we have to subscribe to the fact—and we're going to talk about this—but I don't think we have to subscribe to the fact that Uh, the biblical uh, writers and and the Hebrews understood cosmologies and things of that nature in the same way that the rest of the ancient Near East did. And the reason I think that is because their way was in error. Their works are not true insofar as they comment on the same things that the Bible comments. Because the Bible is true, and we have many lines of evidence for that. So if the Bible is true, then it's automatically a distinguisher and a separator between those other things, and I believe should not be treated on the same level. That's why I think the Bible uh, can most certainly be, be be taken as authoritative on the first chapters of Genesis. From the very first word, God got it right. It doesn't matter if the other ancient Near Easterners around them were in error. Their books were not inspired by God. That's the difference. So I think this is an important thing that many don't... Uh, put into account. Uh, Gordon Wenham writes, "...with careful attention to the ancient Near Eastern context in which the text originated, it is possible to define the genres used in Genesis 1-11, through and thereby attune ourselves to the message that was intended to be conveyed." And Dr. Barrick contends and responds to that, "...perhaps he assumes that the first task is to read the biblical text itself in its own literary context, and to understand first what it itself says." Thankfully, he does get around to internal literary analysis, but only as a second step. And then it is only literary without reference to grammatical exegesis. It is though he refuses to accept the biblical record as prima facie evidence, which basically means to accept it at face value. That's what that means, to to take it first into consideration and then everything else. Uh, I think that's the difference. I I am willing 100%, and you can challenge me, I'm willing to take the Bible at prima facie evidence. Yes, I do trust my own human reasoning, of course, to be able to intelligibly understand the Bible, but when you read the Bible and ask for the help of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says that He is going to help us to understand. And again, you're not going to really understand the Bible until you become a Christian, Is it possible? Now, don't put words in my mouth. I'm not suggesting this necessarily. I'm just asking, is it possible? Is it possible that some of the progenitors of this position are actually not Christians? Now, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that they're not Christians because of a view that they hold. I'm saying that maybe they are truly just not regenerate Christians, And they're commenting on these things. I'm sure that a lot of these things are coming from individuals who are indeed not Christians. I know that because the whole idea of evolution is not built by Christians. It's built as a way, if you study history, it's built as a way to exclude God from the origins debate. That was the philosophy behind evolutionism. Evolutionism did not start with Darwin. It started a long time before that, and actually we might even look at a little bit of that going through this series. So I don't want to get hung up there, but I just want you to think about that. Um, Anybody who is not accepting the Bible at face value, we need to really consider uh, whether they should be able to speak authoritatively on matters concerning it, Uh, because the Bible seems to indicate that it is the final authority, and that we should take the Bible Uh, over anyone else, God said, to obey him rather than men in Romans. And so we need to take that seriously. He said, uh, let God be true, and every man a liar. That's what Paul uh, told us. And so we need to take that into consideration. And again, I don't want to get hung up on interpretations here, but I'm just trying to get the point across that if, if somebody is not willing to accept the Bible at face value, then we need to seriously consider uh, to what extent their opinion, their comments, should have an effect on our understanding of the faith. Now, there are two problems, as I see it, uh, with this whole paradigm, okay? Here's the problem. Number one is that Jesus meant to be understood by the common man. Jesus uh, did not reserve his ministry for the philosophers and the high religious figures of his day and the, and the big thinkers of his day. Did he talk to those people? Of course. But Jesus meant to be understood by the common man, indeed by little children. The Bible says, suffer not the little children or suffer the little children uh, to come unto me and forbid them not. And this is so important. I mean, even the smallest child could understand his message, and yet it confounded the smartest of individuals because it was not the message that they were expecting. And so Jesus, as he spoke in parables and different things, he meant to be understood by the common man. This was not a faith reserved for the high thinkers and the high philosophers of his day or of our day. Anybody can understand the Christian message. And Jesus definitely made some comments about origins. He talked about Noah. He talked about um, Adam and Eve being made from the beginning of the creation. I mean, it's Jesus was a young earth creationist, I believe, okay, based on what we see in the text. Now, some of you listening may disagree with me. You're welcome to offer your opinions, but I believe that Jesus made reference to these historical events, that they certainly happened, a global flood, the creation of the world, Adam and Eve. Does the Bible say that the creation was 6,000 years ago? No. It can't say that because we're only 6,000 years out now. So the Bible gives markers. It gives historical markers based on events that happened. It gives genealogies. It tells us um, about the flood in which we can understand the geology of the world and and make sense of why the world is the way that it is. Uh, I mean, we have been given plenty of markers in the text to arrive where we do, all right? And so, uh, Jesus meant to be understood by the common man, and Jesus fully endorses this view of a literal, historical Adam, all right? Now, I have a question. Did God mean for us to only just now be able to understand how the ancient Hebrews viewed the world? In other words, if we're going to look at this ancient, nearing, eastern context, uh, we know much more about them today than we knew before, so... Uh, between that and then our um, the world's recent forays into biological evolution, are we to just now put those pieces together and and, and understand that that's how we were supposed to interpret the Bible all along, causing us to uh, reinterpret the Bible in ways that no one would have imagined before? Now, remember, I mentioned that philosophically speaking, um, philosophically rather speaking, um, the idea of of evolution in a a broad sense was already around, but nobody could really put a mechanism to it. The um, advent of the Darwinian uh, model of evolution really gave a scientific mechanism to it, and of course that's what caught on and is now uh, finding its way into the church, um, I would argue, in error. Okay, so uh, the question again is not whether evolution fits into the Bible. It's Is evolution true at all? And if the particles-to-people model of evolution is true, or is not true, rather, and we are promoting it into the Bible, then what are we going to do when it goes out of style? Remember, just because it's been the reigning dogma since 1859 does not mean that it can't still change. I mean, it could really still change in this day. I'm not necessarily saying it's going to move over into an intelligent design idea or whatever, but... The, the idea of Darwinian, neo-Darwinian evolution, starting with abiogenesis and moving on up, that paradigm is really being challenged and rethought even by some of the, the greatest atheistic philosophers um, and intellectually honest scientists uh, today. And so if that's the case, then what are we going to do when the rest of the world starts abandoning evolution? Are we as Christians then going to start fighting for evolution? Uh, it just, it doesn't make sense to change your Bible doctrine based on the latest scientific dogma. That's the key. Yes, we can use our understanding of modern science and look at the Bible and gain, gain a perspective on things. But to completely interpret our view of origins based on the current reigning scientific dogma, even with as much evidence as there is for it, um, It just doesn't make sense, because for as much evidence as there is for it, I believe there's as much, if not more, for creation. So, uh, you know, at best, we've got a competing theory. At the worst, we've got something that is not true at all, and then we're trying to work it into the Bible. In my estimation, that's a problem. Uh, The writer continues here, If we elevate ancient worldviews and literature over Scripture, or insist upon limiting the biblical writers to such a worldview, we will go along one path in the debate. If we believe the Bible to be primarily revelation from God rather than an independent product of fallen men, we will take a different path in the debate. And this is uh, so true and kind of speaks to what we have been talking about. Kenneth Keithley and Mark Rooker contend, we believe the historicity of Adam and Eve is so important that the matter should serve as a litmus test when evaluating the attempts to integrate a proper understanding of Genesis 1-3 through with the latest finding of science. It must be realized that any position which denies that a real fall was experienced by a real couple will have adverse effects on other significant Bible doctrines. We should recognize the consequences of trying to alter doctrines that have solid scriptural Footing, and so there are some people who are going to run into a problem with this. You know, um, most day-age creationists typically won't run into a problem in this regard. Their only problem with Adam and Eve is where do they put them? Uh, they believe in in a literal Adam and Eve at some time in the past. Um, I, I, I I'm not positive on this. I believe Hugh Ross puts them somewhere around a hundred thousand years ago. Um, I I can't make that position work with with my Bible. Um, I I just can't get there. My Bible seems to me to indicate um, a a creation much younger than that. Okay. Uh, But anyway, so that's where they try to put them. But theistic evolutionists are really going to run into a problem here. Now, I've heard some who say they still accept the literal Adam and Eve. Um, I have heard uh, some, some... interesting just-so stories that really try to put these things together, Uh, but I haven't really heard one that is faithful to biblical teaching on the subject um, as I uh, understand it. And uh, the way I understand it is with no presuppositions in terms of how the Bible should look to me. Uh, I'm just reading the Bible and taking it at face value and trying to make sense of the world after that. And so uh, I just, I can't, I can't see where, Uh, where theistic evolutionists are going to put Adam and Eve in a way that makes um, meaningful sense. So that's the problem, and that is the paradigm difference between the two. So with that foundation laid, we're going to look at uh, just a couple things here. We're going to look at the creation week, the rest of Genesis, and then we are going to look at the rest of the Old Testament and finish out. All right, so the uh, creation week, um, the writer starts out uh, by saying this, the orderly progression of six days in the creation account, indicates a chronologically arranged historical narrative. In this narrative, a global focus dominates. It is not an account about Israel. It's an account that relates the history of the entire earth and all of its occupants. Now, this is important because this means that the Bible writers, and uh, therefore God, is not trying to make something that is meaningful just for Israel. Uh, Moses, as he's uh, putting all of this together, is not attempting to make an understandable historical cosmology just about the beginnings of Israel. This is a global focus. This is the history of the world. Moses didn't know it, but God knew that he was inspiring his word. All right, And so going along those lines, if God knows everything, and he does, then he knows that you and I are here right now. He knows where I am. He knows where you are. And he knew that we were going to be looking back at the Bible one day. Is it possible that he inspired the Bible in such a way that it would be meaningful for them to understand when they first received the word of god and for us to understand it today thousands of years later i i don't i don't believe that to be past god i believe god can do that so when god comments on the creation week i believe he is talking about all of humanity he is talking globally here this is our shared history as we're going to deal with later on in a later chapter uh, this is the history of the world. This is our origins that is being dealt with. Now, according to John Murray, the platform of life for man is prepared in successive steps, and life itself appears to be an appreciable extent in an ascending scale until it reaches its apex in man. And the author comments that this means a straightforward reading, of the creation narrative impresses upon its readers that mankind has been the goal of the creator all along. Now that's significant. That is extremely significant. God's orderly, I'm reading again, God's orderly and purposeful provision for life on planet Earth serves as strong evidence for understanding the six days of the creation account as a linear sequence, rather than some form of crossover or framework type of structure. Again, as you read it down, it is, it's seemingly very, very linear, and as the author comments, reaches its apex in man. And that says something about you and I. We're getting ready to talk about the image of God, but that says something about you and I. It says we're special. God had an intended purpose for Creation Week, and it was you and I. Now, I just want you to consider, if you are listening as a person who accepts deep time, I just want you to consider that if these statements are true, if the apex of the creation week was man, if if we are made in the image of God, and we are, if we are the focus of creation, and we are, because God said that we would have dominion over the rest of the creation. It was our job to take care of it. If we are the goal of the Creator, the ultimate end of the Creator, who would have been able to create instantaneously and chose not to, is it more reasonable to assume that our history began there and we should use Bible dates and Bible genealogies to go from there to arrive where we are now? Or is it more reasonable to assume, just from reading the text, that we've been here for about 13 billion years or more, 13.8 13.8 billion years. Um, and then 100,000 years ago, God decides to bring us on the scene. If God is outside of time, I don't see a need for that. I, 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 I haven't met too many old earth creationists who don't believe that God is outside of time. Now, I'm not trying to make this a focus on old earth. I want to move on. But I just want you to really reflect on this point. If God is outside of time, and humanity is the goal of creation, why create everything 13.8 billion years ago and just now bring us on the scene? If evolution is not needed to explain the world, then neither is that extravagant amount of time. And I I just don't see a particular reason for coming uh, to that conclusion. So think about that. Remember, God's outside of time. Man is the apex of the creation. He told us that he created in six days and rested on the seventh to give us a framework for our week. Those three facts alone, in light of those three, why would we need 13.8 billion years? That's a question for you to ponder. All right. So let's talk about this matter of the image of God. The Bible says, let us make man in our own image. That's what God said. all right. Remember he's talking plural um, because God is a uh, triune God. all right? God is not a, a single God. God is one God, but He has three persons in one being. all right? And that is, of course, the Father, the Son. And the Holy Ghost. So, um, he uses the first-person plural pronoun to identify the participation of mer- multiple persons within the Godhead. This is how it's written in the book. The biblical statement regarding the image of God highlights the uniqueness in the creation narrative in the ancient world. In other words, mankind receives a much higher place in the created order as compared with other um, ancient Near Eastern stories outside the Bible. In extra-biblical literature... Human beings are merely creatures that exist as an afterthought. Now, um, this is an important point, because if we're just an afterthought in um, other uh, explanations of the origin of the world, then just think about this. If, if, if we are made in the image of God, then it makes sense that we are the apex of the creation, which is what we find in the Bible. But if we're just talking about... Um, People working off of their own natural assumptions, trying to make up myths and just so stories and figure out where we are, then we're not necessarily going to be the apex of the creation. Um, you have to think that at this point, and again, of course, I 100% subscribe to the fact that we were created alongside of dinosaurs. And we'll talk about that another time. But um, dinosaurs did not live. 65 million years ago, current science has disproved that, um, despite anyone's willingness to say so. Um, Current science has disproved that dinosaurs lived millions of years ago. Did dinosaurs live? Oh, yes. They were created with Adam and Eve, 100%. So, you got to remember, at this time, um, there were... Probably dinosaurs in the world, uh, if not living alongside of many of these people. Um, of course, after the, you know, before the fall, it was just Adam and Eve. And after the fall, the dinosaurs would have begun to get hostile, of course. And so um, anytime that we're dealing with this stuff in the ancient Near East, we have to remember that there were other considerations in play. Would a human being trying to make sense of the world, apart from God's revelation in that day, see himself as the apex creation? Now, that's something uh, worth reflecting on. If there are dinosaurs in the world, for instance, do you see yourself as greater than a dinosaur? Well, I mean, we do because of the biblical paradigm. But outside of that, uh, you're thinking, well, those dinosaurs could eat me, right? And so uh, they're not necessarily thinking in such terms. Now, according to Othmar Kiel and Silva Schroer, The literature of the ancient Near East hardly even mentions the origin of humanity as a man and woman, male and female. The author comments, indeed, the overt discussion of the relationship between man and woman distinguishes the biblical account from the extant extra biblical creation narratives. And he continues on, the worldview of the biblical authors does not reflect the worldview of the surrounding Near Eastern cultures. Modern evangelicals who denounce so-called scientific creationism spend far too much time and effort trying to immerse the biblical writers and their product in the ancient unbelieving cultures. To the contrary, the Bible presents a picture at odds with the prevailing opinions of the ancient Near Eastern peoples. The biblical writers do not take a stance in harmony with the rest of their contemporaries. And if this is true, it's extremely significant. Again, it goes back to the point I made a while ago. We should read the Bible Differently because it's a different document. It's an inspired document by God. And so it makes sense that there are uh, differences between this and what we see in other ancient Near Eastern texts. And I don't think we should be interpreting the Bible uh, based on literary styles that we find going on in the ancient Near East that we know are not true. If we know they're not true, why do we interpret the Bible in light of them? All right, people who interpret the Bible in light of evolution, for example, believe that evolution is true. Remember, I want to back up from whether or not it should be in the Bible. I want to start with, is it true at all? Because if it's not true, and we're teaching that it is true and should be in the Bible, then we're erring in many, many, many ways. So, uh, we need to get to the heart of this thing. Now, if we wouldn't do that if we knew something wasn't true, why interpret the Bible in light of something that we know is not a true account? Of origins. Now, that's a question. Alright, now the global fatherhood of Adam. So, according to the text, God formed a single individual, not multiple individuals. This fact requires the reader to understand that Adam is not only an individual created by God, but the very first individual human being whom God made. Into the nostrils of that single individual, God breathed the breath of life, and man became a living being. Then God placed him in the garden, which he had prepared for him. Now, looking at this fact, uh, this is what we find in the Word of God. This is straightforward from the text. Uh, so, at this point, we have to understand that the current evolutionary paradigm says that we came from a original population of about 10,000 beings. And interpreting uh, the way that theistic evolutionists do, um, many of them believe that Adam and Eve was just a uh, called-out couple from this original group. And I, I think I'm faithfully representing that. If somebody would like to correct me there, please do. I, I want to get this right. But I believe that there are some who say that Adam and Eve didn't exist at all, that they were allegorical, metaphorical, but there are some theistic evolutionists who say that Adam and Eve were a chosen couple of progenitors um, in that first population of uh, ancient humans. Um and so that is uh, what what we're asked to think about in terms of the Bible's statements. But it doesn't seem to say that. Uh, it, it, it's talking about Adam being the father of the whole world. I mean, it requires, remember, uh, it, this requires the reader to understand Adam is not only an individual created by God, but the very first individual human being whom God made. Now here, here, this is why. It's, it's very important to understanding first life. Genesis 2-7 says that God made man out of the divine breath, and then man became a living being or creature. It does not say that God made a living being, then out of the divine breath, so that he became a man. Now, Paul says something very similar in 1 Corinthians 15-45. The first man, Adam, became a living soul. Therefore, the idea that God used an evolutionary process to create only the bottom of Adam finds no exe- exegetical support in the Genesis account. So, God creates man out of the divine breath, and then man became a living being. So, we find that echoed throughout Scripture. We don't see any problems with that. Now, unless we totally allegorize that, uh, that statement away from Genesis 2-7, then we've got problems with reading anything else into the text. And so we need to start thinking about it in those terms. Now, the author of Genesis 2, 10-14 also places Eden within the geography of the ancient pre-flood world, not in some mythological or imaginary world. Such details contribute to identifying the text as historical narrative. The first human being resided in Eden, a real geographical location. Remember, it talks about the uh, four rivers. Now, I've heard an argument that, you know, there's... Uh, no evidence of those uh, rivers connecting into Eden and such, and I haven't researched that much further. But, um, again, the Bible speaks of Eden as a real geographical location here in this uh, particular text, and also in later texts it refers to Eden as a geographical location. It's, it's not ever referenced as some um, mythological allegorical thing. Um, Eden is a real place. Now, we want to look at another uh, idea here uh, of the loneliness of Adam. Evidence that there were no other human beings in existence comes when God himself declared that man was alone in 218a. The term alone does not mean lonely necessarily. Lonely refers to a state of mind and emotions rather than a state of existence. Adam's lone existence was not good because it did not allow for God's mandate to be obeyed and fulfilled. In other words, God did not consider Adam's situation good, not because Adam is lonely or has no lively intellectual conversation when he comes in from the garden at nights, but because he will have no chance at all of filling the earth so long as there is only one of him. And this is why... um, we needed Eve. This is why we have Adam and Eve, okay, uh, because we needed somebody to fill the earth. In the very beginning, we would not be here if nobody filled the earth, okay? So God created man, gave him the divine breath, and then uh, brings him together with Eve in order to uh, bring us about. Now, the biblical text I'm reading does not contain anything consistent with the secular science hypothesis regarding the biological evolution of... Of mankind, the biblical details in the account of God's creation of both Adam from dust and Eve from Adam's rib provide the most blatant inconsistency between the Bible and the theory of biological evolution of human beings. If the Bible is correct, the evolutionary viewpoint is wrong. If the evolutionary viewpoint is right, the Bible is wrong. So this is a very important, and he and he is just laying this out as straight. As can be. This is his words, not mine, although I certainly agree. The Bible does not seem to give any, as, as, if we're going to read this thing as it's the inspired word of God, the Bible is not giving any indication in this text that he brought about life as we know it by long ages of evolutionary processes. God created with man in mind. And he didn't start out with a sub version of man. He didn't start out with pond scum, as it were. He did not start out with a lower form and a common ancestor. He did not put us with the animals. We are higher than the animals. We are not an animal. We are human beings made in the image of God. We have divine breath in us. We have the breath of life. We have that consciousness that tells us that we can identify with the Spirit of God and that we're made in God's image. We're different. We're not the same as animals. We're different. We're made in His image, and that matters. Now, I want to look at the next line of evidence, and unfortunately, we're going to have to skip this one. It, it's the use of the name Adam, and you need to get the book and read it, and uh, we don't have time to go into it Um this morning. Uh, but I encourage you to read the book and the author summarizes with this point and this should intrigue your, your interest here. The implication is that all who died in the flood were descendants of Adam using the name of Adam, the name of Adam and, and what different meanings that has in the text. Uh, the author has concluded that all who died in the flood were descendants of Adam. That's the implication of the text is read. So I encourage you to get the book and read through that. That's a very, very interesting point. Um, Of course, there's the disobedience of Adam, all right? Then this is very important to understanding uh, death, okay, As, uh, as we understand it, and also to understanding sin. When Adam sinned, I'm reading, he passed on a heritage of pain, toil, and death. As part of the punishment for disobedience, God expelled Adam and Eve with him from the garden. The creation remained no longer very good. It had been defiled or polluted by the first man's disobedience. In place of blessing, the creator imposed a curse upon the serpent and the other animals and upon the ground. By the repeated use of you, singular and masculine in the Hebrew text, Moses, through the spirit superintending work, emphasized Adam's responsibility for his disobedience and for the fallen condition of mankind in the world. There's something wrong with the world. We all know it. We all recognize them. Even the most atheistic of of people realize that the world is broken in some form or another. Now, what worldview best explains that? Well, Christianity has a great framework for that, and it makes sense of it. It makes sense of the world the way that it actually is. And we can get there just by appealing to our common sense notions and intuition. Uh, But the question is, how do we explain it? And in order to do that, we have to go back to Genesis and we have to understand the fall of Adam. Now, the author comments here, if the account of the fall is merely an allegory, a legend, a myth... Or fiction. The history of salvation through a promised Messiah lacks a reason for existence. Indeed, without a historical Adam involved in a historical act of disobedience, there is no necessity for salvation, no necessity for a historical redeemer." Now, I've heard so many comments on this. I read uh, another blogger just the other day had wrote something, and I fully respect him. I fully respect him and his position. He's got two master's degrees, working on a doctorate degree, Uh, He could probably think past me, uh, no worries, but he wrote a blog blog post the other day uh, saying that while he believes in a historical Adam, he does not necessarily believe that a historical Adam is necessary for redemption. His reasoning was essentially that we know something is wrong with the world, whether or not Adam did it? We have a moral intuition. Of course, we know in Romans 2 that the Bible talks about we have a moral law written on our hearts. We understand that. But the reason that that's there is because of historical Adam and Eve. Remember, we did not know good from evil. Adam and Eve ate from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The reason we have knowledge of good and evil, the reason that this moral law is written on our hearts Yes, is because God put it there, but it is actually because of the fall. Our disobedience gave us the ability to know right from wrong. I believe. Maybe I'm interpreting that wrong. If you think I'm interpreting that wrong, comment to me, let me know. But it appears to me, when I read my Bible, that the reason that we know something is wrong with the world is because at one point something happened that make, that made the world wrong, that made things wrong. So this intuition is not merely an intuition. It is directly tied to a historical event. And of course, we know that Romans 5, 12, 1 Corinthians 15, these passages of Scripture tie the historical Jesus, who we all agree existed, to the historical Adam. And so when you use that, and by the way, there's comments throughout this book. I'm not sure that I took any down. Uh, We might get to some later. But there's comments throughout this book in which the atheists are admitting that if there is no historical Adam, then there is no need for the redemption account of a historical Jesus. Everybody seems to get this, except for those who want to fit evolution into the Bible. So let's be careful here. Let's really understand that this fall of Adam is a very important part of understanding the historicity, understanding what is wrong with the world, and understanding why we needed to say, now, another point of significance is that uh, appears when Moses states that Eve was the mother of all living. Genesis 3.20. The declaration indicates that she is the historical first woman and co-progenitor with Adam of the entire human race. So this extends on. It was Adam and it was Eve. She's the mother of all living, indicating she's the mother of all the living human beings to come after her. So there were only two in the beginning. Eve would not be the mother of all living human beings if there were human beings before Adam and Eve. Now remember, Adam was a special creation. We're talking about special creation here. So the fact that Adam came before Eve is not a problem. There was no such thing as a human having offspring before Adam and Eve because there were no humans made in the image of God to have offspring. That's the difference. Sinfulness and grace. This deals with Genesis 4, and I got to move quickly here. Um, I've only got 10 minutes left uh, on, on the time frame that I would normally go uh, for a lesson, but uh, we might go a little over today. I hope that's okay. It'll be a little long. Maybe you can separate it in, into a day or two, um, but even if I go a little over, it'll be better than recording a whole separate episode, so I apologize um, for this week being so long, but but I think that uh, that you can draw some meaningful things from this. All right, so Genesis 4, Uh, This is the account concerning uh, Cain and Abel. Now, it continues the history of the first couple and their family. This account displays some common characteristics for historical narrative. So, first, we have specific individuals identified by name and relationship. We have geographical locations, descendants identified by name and relationship, and descriptions of actual events, especially events that could have taken uh, place, that could be taken as indicating the wickedness of some the participants. Of course, we know that Cain uh, killed Abel. All right. Now, the parallels between chapters three and four provide readers with greater certainty that both accounts possess equal authenticity and historicity. For instance, here, if the account of the fall in chapter three is merely legend or allegory, then the account of Cain and Abel must be categorized as the same. If the account of Cain and Abel is historically uh, real, if is historical uh, reality preserved with integrity in chapter four then the account of the disobedience of Adam and Eve in chapter 3 must also be accepted as real history. Indeed, in Luke 11, 15 and 51, Christ himself accepted the historicity of the murder of Abel and mentioned it together with the murder of Zechariah. See Second Chronicles 24, 20 through 21. So you see that co-relationship here. Uh, if we have events happening in uh, Genesis 4, which are uh, only events that are possible, if Genesis 3 is true, then Genesis 3 must be true. Unless we just um, allegorize away the whole account of Cain and Abel, which Jesus did not seem to do. Alright? A genealogy of Cain's line and a transition back to the line of promise closed the chapter. Real historical events involving real people have served to advance the narrative and to reinforce the reality of Adam's physical headship over both lines of mankind. Abel had offered acceptable sacrifices. In the other line, Cain had refused to offer a God-provided sacrifice. The spiritual lines are drawn, and the ugliness of sin has become terribly clear. The hope still rests with the seed, or offspring... Of the woman, and so that's where we find the Genesis four account uh, closing out. Now, so it's just it's very very important to understand um, how significant these things are to the historical um, idea of Adam and Eve. Remember, the the lines uh, don't break. Uh, there is all these genealogies which point back, uh, for very specific reasons, these genealogies are not meaningless. In fact, let's look at a genealogy of Adam. Uh, Hoffmeier points out that genealogical texts in the ancient Near East, by their very nature, are treated very seriously by scholars and not cavalierly dismissed as made up or fictitious, even if such lists are truncated or selected. So even Uh, Giving a little ground to one who does not accept a a six thousand year earth, six thousand year old earth, um, even if we give them some ground and say that you know these lists may be truncated or selected, even if they are, um, they're still taken seriously. Uh, We can't just automatically say that there's no reason for them being there. God had no reason for them being there. Um, That doesn't seem to be the case. Adam lived 130 years and begot a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. This demonstrates that Adam is the seminal or physical head of the human race. Adam was created in God's image, but even after the fall, that image continues to be conveyed seminally to each individual. The authenticity and integrity of the genealogy in Genesis 5 equals that of the genealogy in 1 Chronicles 1 which likewise begins with Adam and concludes with Noah's three sons, Adam, Seth, Enosh, Canaan, Mahaliel, Jared, Enoch, Methuselah, Lamech, Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. That's verses 1-4. through four. The identical genealogy occurs yet again in the New Testament in the lineage of Jesus in Luke three thirty-six 36-38, but in reverse order to conclude with Adam as one produced by God. Why did the divine author of Scripture see fit to repeat the genealogy of Genesis 5 three different times? Its repetition provides evidence of its truth, its integrity, its significance, and its reality as trustworthy history. And you have to admit, um, it can be quite difficult to explain these genealogies if it's not meant to give an accurate history of the world. Uh, God is not a God of confusion. We know this. God did not put these genealogies there to trip us up and make the majority of the church think for thousands of years that we were living in a universe much younger than some guys in the 1700s and 1800s decided that we did. So we need to be careful about that. And remember, a careful understanding of history is going to tie the millions of years thinking to that time frame. And again, we'll, we'll talk more about that later on. This is uh, mainly dealing with, again, the Old Testament writers and how they viewed Adam. All right, so that is the creation week, all right? Uh, let's look at the rest of the Old Testament really, really quick. Um, one of the earliest mentions of Adam occurs in Job 31, 33. If I have covered my transgressions as Adam. So Job alludes to Adam's disobedience in the Garden of Eden and speaks of how Adam sought to hide himself and thus his transgression from God. So, Adam uh, is seen as a historical figure by Job. Now, this is interesting. Now, what about biblical inerrancy and biblical authority dealing with the rest of the Old Testament? We're almost through here. Um, We need to understand a few things about the ancient Near East uh, in terms of biblical authority and go from there. Now, one example of some evangelicals drift away from traditional evangelical views regarding biblical inerrancy and biblical authority shows up in the writings of John Walton regarding the historical Adam and Eve. Walton emphasizes that he accepts as fact that Adam and Eve were real people living in a real past. However, he casts doubt on their being the first human beings or the ancestors of all other human beings. Um, Now, we will deal with Walton later. We actually, this book has a whole chapter uh, devoted to him and his work. And that's important because he's been... um, significant. While he does not necessarily claim to endorse an evolutionary view uh, outright, his writings most certainly seem to um, uh, provide a basis for that. And, and in a way, um, I happen to believe that he is a progenitor of that view, or, um, uh, you know, somebody who is promoting that view. So... Um, Again, we'll deal with him later. I don't want to deal with him now, but I do want you to be thinking in those terms. John Walton, he has written quite a few books which deal with the allegorization of Genesis. As a matter of fact, when I talk to people who disagree with my view of Genesis, they almost always reference his books. So he's very important, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time, indeed a whole episode, uh, dealing with uh, some of his work and see if it stands up. All right, now let's look at this idea of pre-science before we close out. Um, One of the uh, prevailing ideas is that the old world, um, uh, you know, people were not um, scientific. In other words, they didn't have the understanding of of today. Um, They call them pre-scientific. Now, is this true? Now, of course, uh, we know that they weren't uh, using technology in quite the way we use it today. Uh, But let's just read a little bit here and gain an understanding. I'm reading. One way by which uh, some evangelicals have sought to reinterpret the Genesis account involves imposing a pre-scientific or old-world science viewpoint upon the authors of the biblical text. After all, they reason... The ancients could not and did not possess our modern scientific acumen and knowledge. Didn't the ancients adhere to a three-tier cosmic geography with a flat earth set on pillars, a solid sky above, and waters above the solid sky? Walton and Lamoureux, that's Dennis Lamoureux of Biologos, along with many other evangelicals, include the biblical writers among the ancients who possessed an inaccurate view of the true cosmic geography. Now, before I continue reading, that, that's, that's important, and it goes back to a point that we talked about in the beginning. Uh, the biblical writers are uh, supposed to have possessed an inaccurate view of geography, uh, cosmic geography. I have issues with this. I, I take issue with this, because that means that... We need to look at the Bible in a way that we cannot draw any scientific meaningfulness for today. And I'm trying to go slow and be careful with my words. The Bible is not a science textbook. Let's get that straight. If the Bible were a science textbook, it could be changed and updated every time a new scientific discovery We're coming out. The Bible is a history book. The Bible, where it speaks on issues, in my humble opinion, is true. Because that seems to be the opinion of God. All Scripture is profitable. That's what Timothy, or Paul says to Timothy. So... If we're going to look at our Bibles critically to the point that we can't accept what it says about the history of the world, then we've got a problem. Now, again, we're drawing a line here between science and history where there may not be one. Uh, we are told that we should treat the Bible as history but not as a literal history when it comes to Genesis, because that's where it gets the science wrong. But is that true? I know That's a question for you. Think about that. Is that true? Um, should we believe that the biblical writers possessed an inaccurate view of the creation of the world, especially as they were inspired to write the Bible? I don't believe that. I believe that God inspired the word to be written just as it was. Were there things that... Um, they wrote that maybe they didn't have a working knowledge of. For example, when when Job talks about springs in the sea, did Job have a faulty understanding of springs in the sea just because we didn't know there were springs in the sea until this past century? So uh, we need to take seriously when the Bible comments on these things. Uh, you know, I, I, get, I get the whole idea of reading modern science back into things. That, you know, I, I mean— the thing is, the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It comments on things that we don't we don't understand yet. There is plenty that we don't understand. So I'm just not so sure that we have to limit the view of the Bible writers to the view of the surrounding ancient Near Eastern uh, area. I just don't think that we have to put those same limitations on the inspired Word of God. Uh, especially concerning science and the history of the world. So let's uh, continue reading. But did the ancients themselves all accept that construct so readily imposed upon them by modern scholars? In recent years, a growing number of scholars have presented evidence that the ancient people used metaphors that they did not take as being the equivalent of reality. This is important. Take the pillars of the earth as one example. In the oldest book of the Bible, Job speaks of the pillars of the earth shaking. Yet, he also, uh, by the way, you can also see uh, Job 9.6, you can see it, and you can see the pillars of heaven in Job 26.11. Yet, he also says that God hangs the earth on nothing, 26.7. It would appear, then, that Job knows he is using a metaphor when speaking of pillars. Another such biblical example can be observed with references to the windows of heaven, Genesis 7, 11, 8, 2, Malachi 3:10. However, an officer in Samaria who was questioning Elisha's claim that God would supply an abundance of flour says, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? 2 Kings 7, 2, and 19. The of- officer uh, clearly treats the picture as metaphorical rather than reality. Job, from the era of the patriarchs, 21st to 18th centuries B.C., and the Israeli officer in Samaria, 9th century BC, both use the figures of pillars, uh, pillars and windows metaphorically. So that's uh, interesting to realize. If we just look at our Bible and we look at different instances in our Bible, we can see how uh, different people in the Bible understood the world. Uh, this is important. I have people who ask me, well, how do you know that the historical grammatical interpretation of reading the Bible is the correct one? Well, it's because it's the one that you find employed by people in the Bible, like Jesus, like these writers that were mentioned here. Um, they take things um, as written. When they speak poetically, they understand it that way. They understand metaphors. They understand when they're speaking about history. Um, They they were not ignorant people, okay? Their understanding of these things. So, um, it is very important that we read our Bible correctly, and the way we know how to read the Bible correctly is by seeing how others in the Bible interpreted previous parts of the Bible. Now, this would be a problem if the Bible were a book written by one man, and again, that would be a problem indeed. But this book was inspired by God, written by 40 authors, over 1,600 years, multiple continents, okay? I mean, this is um you know not some shoddy piece of work this is the inspired word of god we're talking about here and it's time we begin treating it as such will the secular scholarship like it will they treat it that way no should we as christians treat it that way absolutely the bible says the words of the lord are purified in the furnace of fire seven times okay i mean this is this is the word of god this is not to be put on the same plane as somebody else's word who is obviously In error, so let's get that straight. All right, I'm reading within the early chapters of Genesis. Moses describes the ability of the second generation of human beings, Adam to Cain, to build a city, Genesis four seventeen, and the technological acumen of the eighth generation. Um, So, Adam, Cain, Enoch, Ira, Methuselah, sorry, I don't have that right, Um, Methuselah, Lamech, Jabal, Jubal, and Tubal Cain. Boy. how do you like to name your kids that? <laughs> uh, to engage in agriculture and animal husbandry, verse 20. In the production of musical instruments and composition of music, verse 21. And metallurgy, or ironworking, in verse 22. Such evidence should suffice to eliminate the cultural, ethnic, and technological hubris of modern interpreters of the biblical text. Many scholars use pre-scientific, quote, as a label enabling them to conveniently dismiss what the Bible says. If the writers are pre-scientific in their knowledge and worldview, we need not accept what they say about the world as truth. So you can see the obvious um, implications here. If the Bible is right uh, or, or wrong on these matters, what else could it be wrong about? If we don't accept what God said about the origin of humanity, we don't accept how the Bible seems to lay out the case, if we don't accept how other characters in the Bible, if we don't understand how the writer of the Bible made the case in, in the sense that it was accurate, literal history, where it comments on matters of science, it is true, then what are we to do? I mean... We are developing, as young earth creationists, uh, attempting to develop a meaningful philosophy of creation, a meaningful philosophy of science based on what the Bible says. That's the only way it's not going to change, is if we just go with what the Word of God says. If we interpret it based on the latest scientific understanding of things, it's going to change, because science has changed. If we just go by what the Word of God says from the very beginning— Then we cannot go wrong. I want to conclude with this statement. Although there is literal direct reference to Adam and Eve in the rest of the Old Testament, those passages that have a bearing upon them assume their historicity. In fact, the Bible is not the source of doubt concerning the reality of Adam and Eve as the originators of the human race. Rather, Human commentators and theologians, even those who count themselves as evangelicals, have cast doubt and incredulity on the historicity of Adam and Eve. Those who defend the integrity of the first three chapters of Genesis must recognize the close ties those chapters have with the entire primeval history of mankind in Genesis 1-11. through And the necessity of its accuracy and historicity as the foundation for Genesis 12 through to the conclusion of the New Testament. It's clear to me, it's clear to me, that the Old Testament writers, the biblical writers, and those who are portrayed as characters in the Old Testament took Genesis 1 through 11 just as literal history as any other part. The connections back uh, historically in the genealogies and the lines give us a clear reason to uh, accept these to be historical accounts. Um, does it fly in the face of modern science? No. It, it flies in the face of some modern scientific interpretations, which I believe are in error, but modern science confirms the word of God the uh, does it fly in the face of the ancient near eastern uh, peoples around them i believe it does it's different it's not the same it shouldn't be treated as as the same that's where i choose to hang my hat on this position and so next week we're going to start talking about Uh, the New Testament and the church, and that's going to be really exciting to kind of see where they fall on the Bible um, as far as the historical Adam and Eve and the historical fall and things of that nature and see if we can find this same resilience and this same upheld theme in the New Testament as we did in the Old. So let's go ahead and conclude for today with a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to uh, study your word, to study your world, and to study our origins. We thank you, Father, for making us in the image of God. Giving us the ability to love, appreciate beauty, to understand, to learn about you. Father, even to reach the stars. We are eternally grateful for everything that you've done in our, in our lives up to this point. And we pray that you would just continue to watch over us personally. God, we thank you that you are a personal God. We thank you that you're a God who loves us in spite of our inability to comprehend things uh, sometimes. Uh, God, I pray that you would, through this series, uh, help your truth to be shown and to be uh, known uh, among those who maybe don't see it the way that the Bible seems to, to lay it out. Uh, Lord, we just pray that you would do your work through this series. Lord, if there's any lost listening, I pray that you would help them to come to the knowledge of the truth. Lord, help us to be able to encourage them in their walk and in their understanding of our origins. where we're all made in the image of you. Uh, God, it's, it's so important that we understand that we're special, that we mean something, but we only mean something because we're made in the image of God. Thank you again for that. We love you, Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, I thank you for hanging out with me. A little bit longer episode this time than normal. I apologize for that, Uh, but it wasn't enough to make two episodes out of, and I knew I'd go a little long, but I appreciate you sticking with me. Otherwise, we will see you next week here on the Creation Academy. We're going to be talking about uh, the New Testament and the Church Fathers and things of that nature, so we're really excited about that. Thank you again, and we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.